are a staple of our human experience. Um, just, just think about the few hours that you've been awake this morning. Uh, how many doors have you passed through? Uh, ch- chances are that for some of you, uh, maybe if you're a little bit older, you have to get up during the night. Uh, you've passed in and out of the bathroom door several times already. Uh, most of us have passed through a bedroom door, uh, maybe even a garage door, a closet door, a front door, a storm door. Uh, you likely had to pass through a car door uh, to get here this morning. And, and even since you've been here, you've come through lobby doors and auditorium doors Uh, Doors are just a part of the human experience. Uh, And here's what you probably also know, and I'm certain you know, is that not all doors are created equal. Uh, So some doors take us to places that are absolutely incredible, and and some doors take us to places that are filled uh, with pain. I want to show you just a picture of a few doors that I found uh, to help you see that not all doors are created equal. And so uh, here's the first set of doors Uh, These are the doors of the U.S. Bank Stadium in Minneapolis, Minnesota. It's the home of the Minnesota Vikings. Uh, They're considered the largest functioning doors uh, in the entire world. Uh, The doors range uh, in height from 75 feet to 95 feet tall. Uh, They each are 55 feet wide, and collectively they weigh 40,000 tons. Uh, Those are some big doors. Um, Not all doors are created equal. Uh, The next set of doors that you'll see, um, these are the doors of people passing in and out of the rotunda at the U.S. Capitol building. Uh, They're called the Columbus Doors. The doors were carved in Germany in the 1850s. They didn't arrive here until years years later, nearly a decade later, uh, because of the Civil War. They're ornately carved. Um, and, And you know that what happens in our Capitol building whether it's the House of Representatives or uh, the chambers of the Senate, uh, they affect not only what happens in our own country, our own experience of life, uh, but really they affect and and have ripple effects around the world. Not not all doors are created equal, are they? Now, now be quiet just for a moment. If there are younger uh, children in our midst, I want you to see this next door. Uh, does anybody in, in our younger generations recognize the next door? Just show me your hands if you recognize the door, all right? Uh, that's Boo's door. Um, if you're a college kid, I'm not about, about Boo's door. We're talking about Boo as in B-O-O apostrophe S. Uh, Boo is in Monsters, Inc., the hit Disney Pixar film. And uh, this is the door to her closet. And we know that what happens behind that door actually in the fictional world of uh, Monsters, Inc. leads to a complete transformation of society. Not all doors are created equal. Uh, here's another set of doors, a gateway, an entrance. Uh, anybody just by a show of hands recognize that? Uh, it's the entrance to Disney's Magic Kingdom. Uh, you have the train station, the Main Street train station that sits up high and down below was people pass through the turnstiles and turn in their tickets, uh, put their magic bands through the, the little swiper thing, whatever that is. Um, uh, they have to go through two different doorways, entrances, gates. And if we're just honest, some doors, some gates, some entrances are just more special than others. Um, if you're like uh, our family, we've had some very special experiences at Walt Disney World. Um, 
Uh, they say magic happens behind the gates, and I'm not a big, huge fan of magic, but I know that something special happens when we're present with our families and we're uh, eating Dole Whip after Dole Whip and enjoying uh, ice cream shaped like Mickey Mouse ears, and, and we're going to uh, a place to get waffles that are filled with all kinds of Nutella and all kinds of good stuff, and we're, we're riding Thunder Mountain Railroad. Something special happens in there. Um, not all doors are created equal. Uh, here's a hallway that you'll see that you probably won't recognize. Uh, this is a hallway in southeastern Haiti uh, in a little city called Peridot. Uh, one of our mission partners is Haitian Christian Outreach. And Haitian Christian Outreach years ago built a hospital. And just two weeks ago, they finished the surgical center in that hospital. And not only do they now deliver babies um, for mothers who used to walk for hours in labor to have a baby, no longer do they, they have to send their C-sections two more hours down the road by moto or, or by land cruiser. Um, but now they can deliver children right here in their surgery center. Uh, there's a picture of one of the very first surgeries that took place. And by the way, this happens through, in part through the support of, of Lebanon Christian Church. You may not know this or not, but, but we are uh, Haitian Christian Outreach's largest church partner. And so you are directly invested uh, in lives being changed, not only physically, uh, but hearts being changed in, in Parado, Haiti. Not all doors are created equal, uh, are they? Now, I, I have all kinds of other pictures of doors. One of my favorites didn't even make it into the presentation. There's this picture of a door that remains. Um, the rest of the house is gone in the Alps, and it looks out. And as you look through the door, you see mountain after mountain after mountain. Not all doors are created equal. Yet life is full of doors. Uh, I was curious, you know, what would we say the purpose of a door is? Um, and so I went to a civil engineering website, and I found that they have a whole blog dedicated to things like this. And so uh, civil engineers have sat, and they've tried to define the purpose of a window, the purpose of a door, uh, the purpose of a foundation. And, and, and in, the, in, in the description of the purpose of a door, this is how succinctly the civil engineer said it. Uh, the civil engineer wrote that a door's purpose is to provide access to what's inside the building. Uh, he went on to write that it's a connecting link between two spaces. A door is an access point. It grants us access to what's inside. It's a connecting link. Here's something else we know about doors. Doors are both a beginning and an end. Sidewalks, driveways, parking lots, hallways, they all end at doors, closet doors, bedroom doors, kitchen doors, store doors, restaurant doors, amusement park doors, car doors. They, they, they all end somewhere. But what do we also know? That doors are a beginning because when you move inside through the door, there's, there's something different, something new, something not like where you came from. And it's because of these reasons that a door is both a beginning and an end, because a door is an access point, because a door is a connecting link between two spaces, that we use the door as a common metaphor, don't we? We use the door to describe opportunities, decisions, choices that we make. Um, maybe you've said something like this. Uh, you, you went for a job interview, you saw a position posted, and you talked to some friends, and you said, you know, I really hope that door opens for me. 
or maybe you applied for a job, it was the position that you just thought that, that you were intended to have, and uh, you didn't get it. And so what did you tell a mother, a father, a friend, a, a loved one? Well, it looks like God closed that door. We use the word door to describe the circumstances, situations. And here's what we know when it comes to choices and experiences and things in life that we might describe as a door. Not all doors are created equal there either, are they? Because we have the doors of disease. We have doors that we walk through of inconvenient and untimely diagnosis. We have the door of death that people we love pass through. We have the door of tragedies. But, but it's, it's, it's not all things that are despairing and suffering. They're, they're doors of the gift of life. Uh, a child is adopted, or you bring a child into foster, or you give birth to a child, and it's a door. A new opportunity, a new experience. There are doors of relationships. Uh, maybe you meet the right girl, or you, you met the right guy, and the door opened, or, or maybe the door closed. Not all doors are created equal. And the beauty of the resurrection is that there is a door that transforms our experience of every other door we encounter in life. As we put the spotlight on the resurrection on this Easter Sunday, I want to show you one final door. This door... Whenever I see this image, it, it gives me uh, goosebumps. Uh, it, it causes the hair to stand up on the back of my neck. It, it fills me with this radiating joy because it's this door that changed everything for me. And I know by looking around the room that for so many of you, it has changed everything for you. And the door that I'm, not, I'm talking about is, is not the opening in the tomb. The door that I'm talking about is Jesus himself. He's the door who changes everything. He's the door that, that, that makes despair and he, he turns it into hope. He's, he's the door that takes our suffering and he finds, helps us find joy in the midst of that sorrow. That's the door of Jesus. And this is a declaration that Jesus makes about himself. He says, I am the door. Uh, John, one of Jesus' uh, closest friends and followers, uh, was nearing the end of his life uh, as, as we date John's gospel, um, it tends to land somewhere between 80 and 100 uh, A.D. Uh, John is much older. It's been a long time since he heard that first voice of the rabbi and jumped out of his father's fishing boat with his brother and came to shore and decided to follow this radical rabbi named Jesus. And when he looks back on his life, um, he, he saw Jesus live. He, he saw Jesus die. He was at the cross. Jesus spoke to him from the cross and told him to take care of his mom. He was one of the first ones that saw the empty tomb. He, he was in the upper room when a risen Jesus appeared and pushed all the doubt away, not only for Thomas, but for others. He, he was there on the shore when they cast their nets on the other side in the early morning and brought in a haul of fish and they cooked it on the beach and they went for a walk. Jesus was there when, and John was there when Jesus ascended. John was there in Jerusalem, uh, the, the same place where the Passover feast was held when, when a, the Spirit of God breaks forth and, and they can hear things they'd never heard before. He was there and he watched lame men walk and blind men see. 
And he was there as the early followers of Jesus exploded all throughout the Roman Empire. At the end of his life, he looks back and he says, this is a story that people have to know and people have to understand. And he even tells us that there are so many things that Jesus did, so many things that he said. There's so much in this man who changed his life that, that the books uh, in all the world couldn't contain what he did. And, and so why? Why did John tell the story? Uh, John chapter 21 tells us this. Sorry, John chapter 20 uh, verse 31 tells us this. He says, but these are written that you may believe, that you may have confidence, that you may have faith, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed, chosen, rescuing king, the son of God. And that by believing, by placing your confidence, your hope, your faith, you may have life in his name. And, and, and that life that he talks about, um, if you look at the original language, is actually the same word used for eternal life. It, it's not just breathing. It's not just waking up on Monday morning and doing the same old thing in the same old way. It's, it's not just the dirty diapers. It's, it's not just the commute into Indianapolis. It's not just the, the rice and beans on your plate. This is a life of fullness. This is a life that brings a perspective like no other to everything, a life that radiates with purpose and meaning and joy. And so John says, I recorded what I did because I wanted you to have that life. And so he intentionally chooses things Jesus said and things Jesus did to help people find that life. And one of the things that he chooses again and again are these declarations that Jesus makes about himself. He tells us that Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He, he, he tells us that Jesus said that I am the light of the world. He tells us that Jesus said to a, a woman who is crying, she's mourning the loss of her brother, that Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Uh, to his disciples, he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And what we're going to see in John chapter 10 to a crowd of people, uh, some doubters, some curious, some faithful, some transformed, uh, some brokenhearted, he says, I am the door. In, in John chapter 10, verse 9, here's how Jesus says it. He says, I am the gate. Some of our translators choose the word gate instead of the word door, but it's the exact same word. Uh, a gate is a, a door. Uh, the, the imagery in chapter 10 is all about shepherding. And so uh, our translators of the New International Version, the New, Tra New Living Translation, they, they look at it and they say, well, if it's shepherding terms, let's use the word gate because uh, sheep pass through a gate. But it's still a door. And so when you see the word gate, you should see the word door. Jesus says, I am the gate. I am the door. Whoever enters through me, whoever gains access through me, will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. What prompted Jesus to say, uh, I am the door? Because that helps us understand the significance of what he's saying. Uh, for that, we have to go backwards to what prompted the statement. Uh, John records that in, in John chapter 9. He tells the story of a day when he and the other disciples were walking with Jesus, as, as was commonplace for them. 
And as they're walking, they find this blind man. And we learn through the account, as John describes it, that the man had been blind since birth. He'd never been able to see. If I just linger in that description for a minute, my mind takes me all kinds of places. I have been able to see thus far my entire life. Um, I see beautiful, bright colors, pastels, darks. Uh, I see uh, beautiful faces. Um, I, I go to the mountains and I see trees and I see ridges and, and rippling brooks. I cannot imagine uh, never having been able to see. Um, the closest I come to appreciating it is I, I have good friends and family members who have had cataract surgery. And they talk about how things had grown so dim and they, they couldn't really pick out details anymore. And then they, they go and they have surgery and then suddenly it's like the world comes to life again for them. This, this man had never seen any of those things. And, and Jesus does the most peculiar thing. He, after some questioning from his disciples, he, he walks up to the man. He, he bends down and in, in the dust, he, he spits and he takes his saliva and he rubs it in the dust and makes this muddy paste and does something awkward and odd that probably only Jesus can pull off. He, he, he takes the, the caked mud and he actually rubs it on the man's eyes. And he tells him, go and, and wash yourself in the nearby pool. And so the man, probably with the help of friends, stumbles to the pool, enters the pool. And as he washes the mud away... Light refracts and reflects and penetrates for the very first time. Can you imagine seeing for the first time? He is saying things to his friends and they're like, yeah, I've seen that since I was born. Like, did you notice that? Holy cow, you're much uglier than I thought. You know, he's saying all, you know, there's this blind man. It's like, I can see for the first time, right? He's, 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 he's looking and he's seeing and, and then the people are amazed. They want to know how, why, what, what, what makes you see? And so he starts telling them the story of how this, you know, that guy, Jesus, that radical rabbi, he put mud on my eyes and it just amazes the people to the point like, we, we need to let the religious leaders know this. So they take him to the Pharisees. The, the, the blind man gets questioned by the Pharisees. And all he can say is something about Jesus. And all they can think is that it's the Sabbath and this probably shouldn't have taken place in, in their set of rules. And they're frustrated by it. And so they want the parents to be present. And so the Pharisees call for the blind man's parents. And um, they say, well, he's grown up. He can speak for himself. And they question him again. And he, he talks about Jesus being someone special. He thinks he's a prophet. He can do miraculous things. And when the Pharisees hear this, they're so frustrated. They're so frustrated by Jesus. Their response to the formerly blind man is to kick him out of the synagogue. Now, for you and I, when we initially hear that, I think that we uh, kind of imagine someone being kicked out of church. He can just go find another synagogue. He can just go find another church. But being kicked out of a synagogue was far more devastating than that. To be kicked out of a synagogue was... Um, the same as being kicked out of the faith. Essentially, as these Pharisees said, you have no part in, Ju in, in Judaism. You have no part in the inheritance of the Jewish people. Everything that you have built your life upon to this point, it's no more. You're on your own. It would have changed his relationships in the community. It would have changed his relationships with his other Jewish friends. It would have changed his relationship with his Jewish family members. 
So this man who suddenly can see, who, who, who suddenly has access to things he never had access to before, actually comes to what feels like a very abrupt end for him. Everything he knows is gone. And I can't imagine the roller coaster of elation to devastation. But Jesus meets up with him and he starts asking him questions about the Son of Man, the one who the Jewish faith pointed to, who looked to. And in that conversation, that man comes to understand, the formerly blind man, that Jesus is actually the one his heart has been longing for, that his people have been anticipating generation after generation after generation. And suddenly what felt like an end is a whole new beginning. And this man who can see with his eyes now can see with his heart and he can interpret things in a whole new way. And so Jesus has all of this in mind when he speaks to this crowd. And he's, the people have seen the blind man. And he's, 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 he's looking back to him and saying, listen, I am the door. If you will enter through me, you can be saved. See what happened to the blind man? He was willing, even though he was devastated, to, to, to move into the life that I provide. He says, whoever enters through me will be saved. He'll go in and out and find pasture. That, that phrase to us probably just feels very common. There's nothing significant about it. But what if you knew that those are the same words that God spoke to the people uh, of God, the people of Israel through Moses, um, that when they would obey him, when they would enter the promised land, they would go in and they would go out. What if you knew that David is a psalmist multiple times? Psalm 121 is the great, one of the greatest examples. He speaks of where their help comes from. and He talks about how you will go in and go out and the Lord will watch over your going out and your coming in. The prophets spoke of people repenting and reaching a time when they would go out and they would come in. It's, it's a phrase that reflects the freedom, the fullness, the overwhelming sense of life and joy, absent of fear that God's people experience when they are right with him. And so Jesus says, I am the door. Just as this man's life changed, just as he gained access to something he previously did not know, previously did not have, you can gain access to the very same thing. And you can find that life of freedom, that life of fullness, that life of a richer and deeper experience, even in the midst of tragedy. That can be for you. And that was cemented, that was sealed in the resurrection of Jesus. What we celebrate and we put the spotlight on today, that's the door. And that door is available to every single one of us. See, see, here's the masterful plan of God. When the world began, uh, God created it. And when you read the account of creation, every day when God finishes, he says the same thing. He says, it is good. On the sixth day, he, he creates uh, some animals and he says that it's good. And, and then he, he does a really special work of creation. He makes man and woman. In the image of God, he created us, male and female. He created them, Genesis 1.27. And what does he say after creating man and woman? It's very good. Why is it all so good in the beginning? Because mankind lives in absolute harmony and fullness and life with God, absent of fear. They're going out and they're coming in. But we know something else happens. The story changes, doesn't it? And what is so good, what is so right, what is so incredible suddenly falls apart. Adam and Eve distrust, they disobey, they rebel against God's best. 
And in that moment, a very holy, perfect God living in harmony with his people, he, he can no longer be in close proximity to those who have sinned. And so mankind is cut off from the fullness of God. And there is pain and there's suffering. And God works his rescue plan. He raises up Abraham and says, I'm going to bless the world through you. And Abraham has a son named Isaac. And Isaac has a son named Jacob. And Jacob has these boys that become the tribes of Israel. And through this messed up, broken people, God keeps working to the point that to a man named Joseph and a woman named Mary, he brings his son into the world. A perfect, holy, spotless son who, who knows no sin. That's what 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us, that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. And so God sends Jesus into the world and he shows us the very best of what it means to be human. He shows us that good life that God intended from the beginning. And people taste of it, and it, it strikes some people as odd and awkward, and they, they kind of stand off from it. And then as he lives his life, he, he comes to the place where he's willing to take upon himself the very punishment of our separation from God that comes through our sin, and he wears it. He wears it on the cross. And as much as we're horrified by what we think about on Good Friday, the crown of thorns... The flogging, the beating, the spitting, the tears, the spear through the side, the mocking, none of that compares to the weight of all the despairing sin of all of humanity that he bore in that moment, that moment when God actually turned away and Jesus cries out with that loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you turned from me? And in that moment, he takes upon himself that which has separated humanity from their creator, from the very good things they were created for. He goes into a, a tomb, hastily buried on Friday evening before the sun could set. And he's there all day Saturday. Disciples are hiding scared. His followers are asking questions. And when those who love him the most travel to his burial site, the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, they go to prepare his body the right way. And what do they find? It's empty. He's risen, just as he said he would. And in that moment, what had separated humanity from God is buried and taken away forevermore, and resurrection is possible, eternal life is possible for all who believe. Jesus sealed himself as the door that all who would pass through him can be saved. He provides access to what is inside. What is inside the heart of God, perfection. What is inside the heart of God, but hope. What is inside the heart of God, but the goodness and the greatness that we all desperately crave. And it's only possible as we pass through Jesus in faith, believing in him, trusting in him, and he changes everything. That's the beauty of the resurrection. He is the door. He brings fullness. In fact, he says this in John chapter 10, verse 10. We know that verse better than John chapter 10, verse 9. Uh, he says that the thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy, but I came that you might have life and life to the full. It's that going in and that's going out. It's that life free of fear. It's that life where you're present and you have fullness, even in the midst of all the awful doors we go through in life. He changes everything. In the coming weeks, uh, we're going to continue talking about the door. 
But what we're going to do is we're going to talk about the doors we experience in life. Next week, we're going to look at the door of grief and how Jesus changes the door of grief for us. Then we're going to look at the door of suffering and hardship and how the door, Jesus, changes all of that. Then we're going to look at the door of the unexpected because we all know that often the hardest things in life come unexpectedly, right? And then the final week, we're going to look at uh, the door of blessing. Every good gift comes from the Father above. How does the door of Jesus change the way we see the good things in life? This door changes everything. And here is my hope for you. If, if you have yet to pass through the door of who Jesus is, that, that you would choose today, this week, to believe in the one whom God sent, who died, who rose again that you would confess that he is the king. He's going to be the king of your life. That, that you would turn from your own ways and you would turn towards his ways walking through the door. Uh, we call that repentance. And that you would dive deep into his life, buried with him, your sins completely put away uh, in baptism and, and raised to life, his spirit living in you, a whole new person. Where the end is just the beginning of something new. A few years ago, a group of leaders from our church and myself were um, out in California. We were meeting with the company who would later help us redo our auditorium uh, late last year. And as we met with them, um, he had some connections. He was a former Disney Imagineer, and so he took us to Disneyland. Well, not to Disneyland, to the very border of Disneyland, which if you're a Disney fan like me, that's like torture. Um, so we sat in a restaurant in the Grand uh, Californian Hotel, uh, themed after um, uh, the kind of the woods scenes and Snow White and things like that. And uh, behind me, 15 to 20 feet away, is a glass window. And on the other side of that window is Disneyland. Like if I could jump through the window, I would have been in Disneyland. But I couldn't go in. And later that, that afternoon, we, we walked through downtown Disney and the original downtown Disney and uh, downtown D Disney kind of dead ends at the gates of Disneyland. And I, I, I could smell the food. I could hear the laughter. I mean, the rumors of excitement were all around, but I couldn't go in. And why couldn't I go in? The group of men that I, I, I was with, uh, we were unwilling to, to pay the price. Here we are late in the afternoon, three or four o'clock, and Disneyland closes about nine, and uh, the cost was about 120 bucks. Um, and we didn't want to pay that cost. Here's what happens to so many of us. We, we hear all these rumors and whispers of what Jesus is like, of what life with him is like. We hear the reports of how he changes the way we feel about grief, how, how we feel about death, how we feel about suffering and hardship. We, we hear about what, how he's changed other people, but for us, we hear that and we think, that's going to come at a price. It's going to mean the end of, of all that I know about myself and how I've made decisions. It's going it's to mean doing things in a whole different way, and we're not sure we want to pay the price, and because we don't want to pay the price, we miss out on what's inside. And my challenge to you is to take that step 
to, to give up control of your own life, to surrender to him because he will make sense of all the things in your life that seem senseless and the ones that you can't quite get a handle on, he will give you the faith and the hope and the courage to endure as he walks you through those trials that seem so difficult to comprehend. That's what he does. And so if you need to walk through that door, here's what I'd encourage you to do. First and foremost, and I say this all the time, and here's why I say it. I want you to talk to the person that invited you. You have a personal relationship with them. If they're a lover of God and they follow Jesus, talk to them about how they can pass through that door, how you can, how they did. If they don't have the answers, then they know other people they can talk to. Maybe you're here and you don't have someone. Here's what I'd encourage you to do. Uh, on our connection cards, which is in the inside of your bulletin in the, in the insert. On the very back, it says next steps. And there are some next steps mentioned. I'm ready to walk through the door of Jesus' invitation. I have more questions about this beginning, what this beginning looks like in my life. I'd like someone to contact me. Please pray for me as I think about what this means for me. If you would mark that and, and put your name on there and a way to contact you, we will in the very early days of this week get with you because we want you to walk through that door. For those of you that have walked through the gates, you've walked through the door of Jesus. Here's another challenge. Uh, can you imagine um, walking uh, through the gates of, of Disneyland or the Magic Kingdom and, and, and just choosing to just sit on a bench, uh, never, never taste the Dole Whip, uh, never eat the Mickey Mouse ear ice cream cone, never have the Mickey Mouse shaped Rice Krispie treat, Never take in a show, uh, never ride a ride, uh, never watch the delightful smile on the face of a child who's holding a balloon that we all know within hours will accidentally be lifted up into the heavens. Yet you and I both know, and maybe you're the person who, who says time and time again, I believe in Jesus, I believe in God. And while we'll say that we believe and we step through the door of Jesus, um, we've never taken advantage of all that he supplies. Uh, he's something we do a few times a year, uh, maybe a couple times a year. Maybe someone we think about only when we're suffering. And if that's you, I want to encourage you, there's so much more to Jesus. The power of the resurrection, what Jesus did, has changed my life, not just on Easter Sunday, not just on Christmas Eve, but every day of my life. It's changed my marriage, it's changed my parenting, it's changed the way I love people and the friend that I am, how hard I work. It changes everything, and that's what he wants for you, to live in the beauty of his incredible kingdom as you pass through the door. And so if you've not taken part in the kingdom life, that you say you believe in Jesus, my challenge to you is with deep conviction, will you, will you repent? Will you call upon God and say, God, I'm sorry, I'm going to start enjoying this life the way you intended to be lived and enjoyed. And then finally, if you're in this space and you know, like I do, how much Jesus has changed everything, I want you to take a look at that picture again of the greatest door ever. And I want you to live your life encouraged because he has changed absolutely everything for you. With Jesus the door, not all doors are created equal. And the end is just the beginning. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the chance to celebrate with so many people this morning, yesterday evening in the 
the service that's to come. So many we don't get to share in this journey with on a weekly basis. And God, I pray that we would just be captivated by you as our door, as our gateway to all that matters most in life. God, may we yearn to enter into your kingdom, to experience the things that we cannot experience apart from you. Fill us, Father. Call us. Lead us into the fullness of your life. And it's in your name we pray and we trust and we want to live the name of Jesus in whom there is life. Amen.